So it's the first week of November 2019, and it seems too early to be talking about the holidays, but Christmas stuff is in the stores already, and here in Chicago, it's already snowed twice, including once on Halloween. So I guess this is the perfect time to be talking to Tony-winning director Mary Zimmerman, who's who's remounting her annual holiday classic, (laughs) The Steadfast Tinged Soldier. Am I right? Yes, you are right. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever it is, wherever you are. I'm Austin Titchener, one-third of the Reduced Shakespeare Company, and you're listening to this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast, number 674, Steadfast Tin Soldier. Well, as I record and post this episode on Monday, November 11th, it's now snowing for the third time here in this Chicago autumn of 2019. So I'm doubly, triply thrilled to talk about the Looking Glass Theater production of The Steadfast Tin Soldier with its director and adapter, Mary Zimmerman, who works regularly with both the Looking Glass and Goodman theaters here in Chicago, directs around the country and all over the world, won a Tony Award when her landmark production of Metamorphoses went to Broadway, and is unquestionably the very first MacArthur Genius Grant recipient who's appeared on this podcast. We sat in her kitchen last Thursday where she did not bake me holiday cookies, although she offered. And I started our conversation by asking Mary what drew her to adapting Hans Christian Andersen's steadfast tin soldier for the stage. You know, it's the only story of Hans Christian Andersen's that they say he made up entirely. Like the Grimm brothers, he was you telling, putting in print folklore that existed and everyone knew these stories but steadfast and soldier he made up himself i think i am always attracted to there's a bittersweet obviously mm-hmm. quality to it and i'm attracted to characters with something missing or you know adversity or not feeling like you fit in or that you're an outsider right but to tell the truth also i was and this is very, very rare for me that I'm looking for something, but I was looking for something, a a sort of story that could be a holiday story that hadn't been done in my, my, to my knowledge before. I wanted to do something like that. Oh, interesting. And is there a holiday aspect to Hans Christian Andersen's original story, or did you just find that? There really isn't. The Tin Soldier's a present, I believe, or he may not even be. He might just, it might just start with the child playing or introducing them, but it was very easy to make him a Christmas present. And if you see the show, you know, there's this beginning, which is an advent calendar, which was an idea I'd had forever. I wanted to do a a Christmas carol and at some point realized I was never going to get to, but I had this idea of opening it with a Christmas advent calendar that's counting down till curtain. Because just doing that every minute, it's about the length of time a house is open, and I loved those advent calendars as a child. And there's something about at curtains that function as like the wrapping of a present or creates anticipation. So I'd had that idea, and then I just wanted to do something, you know, very beautiful and compressed and um, possible, you know, for the holidays, yeah. 
Well, and and it's a lovely thing. I haven't seen the current remounting because I saw it a year ago, and I think you're just going into previews. Yeah, no, yeah. we well, we oh. sort of it's we had a weird schedule. We officially opened on <laughs> so bizarre. We opened on Sunday, but then critics are coming this week because it's a remount, <laughs> and there was a hundred things opening already, and right. we just wanted to get open, I guess, yeah. and like next weekend's no good, whatever. So it's this bizarre schedule, but we are we're running, and it all. You know, we are up. We're up and running. Well, and it, it, it was rapturously received a year ago uh, here in Chicago, which is, I think, one of the reasons it's being remounted. Um, but I think what you're talking about this opening, you know, yeah. prelude activity that happens before the show's even begun, as the people are coming and being seated, it it immediately draws the audience in in a really lovely way. Yeah. So yeah, like every thirty seconds or every minute, there's a little ticking of a clock and a bell rings, and someone comes out and opens one of the sort of little doors in a hard act curtain we have that's got a sort of, you know, fairy tale picture of a castle, but also the swag of a theatrical curtain in front of it. Like it announces itself as a theatrical, old fashioned theatrical drop. And they kind of improvised the four or five different actors who do it um, different funny sort of way. Each time a surprising way that they come out. And the musicians come out to the pit that way by coming out and opening a door and so forth. So I think it, I think it does create suspense. And you know, it works just like I wanted it to, which is I didn't want, I I would have cut it if people sat in reverent silence and just like stare, because it's not entertaining (laughs) enough for that. You know what I mean? Something only happens once a minute. But they kind of chit-chat, chit-chat, and then they quiet down a little bit, and they watch that one, and they have a little reaction. Then they go back to chit-chatting, which is exactly what I, what I wanted. Um, and was there, you talk about the red swag curtain that kind of frames it. it, yeah. it, it and I love the, that the orchestra, yes. the band comes and sits down. Is there, a, is there a conscious influence of English music hall? Because that's what it felt like to me. You know, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. When I was a... Uh, very young, I used to watch um, Upstairs, Downstairs on Masterpiece Theater and they would, in the second or third season, they started after the episode, they had, you know, ten extra minutes, they would go go to some English music hall somewhere that was still doing the old acts and songs. That you're the only person who said that, but that was that was very influential on me. It was, it's kind of the British version of vaudeville. Right. And also the British version uh, or tradition of pantomime. Yeah. I was taken to the Christmas panto when I was five. Wow. Um, in England because my parents were academics and were there for a year and a half in Cambridge and London. And I was taken to the Christmas panto, although they did speak, but it was still called the Christmas pantomime. It was Cinderella right. that year, actually. Right. Panto doesn't mean silent uh, there is yeah, the way it does here. Way, yeah. And, but, and yet, that was something I was going to ask. At what point did um, you decide that there would be no dialogue in the show? It, it wasn't at first. You know, I was thinking of doing something. I found the story. I was very intrigued by it. It had lots of adventures in it, episodes. I sort of like episodes yeah. in stories. And um, But it only had one, I think, one or two spoken lines of dialogue. Now, normally when you adapt something, you actually are looking for something that is a lot in the dramatic mode, where people are speaking to each other already in dialogue, like that it takes place in that mode in a certain way. You don't want it to be all narrated or all internal or whatever. And um, I was like, how, okay, how am I going to handle this narrative? I don't just want to narrate this whole thing, and I don't want to have to make up, put everything in scene, which sort of belabors moments, you know, when you have to invent dialogue, you know, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I knew I wanted it to be 
extremely visually giving and blossoming all the time visually. And I just suddenly thought, what if I don't do the narrative, meaning <laughs> the, you know, the, the narrative voice. What Once upon I, a time, right. yeah, you know. What if I just don't do it and find a way around speaking? And immediately that was correct, I felt. And I just felt that, and it is, I feel this is sort of proven to be the case, you know, even if you're absolutely fluent in your native language, which we are, listening at a place or listening to people is still a process. You're still undergoing a kind of process in your brain. And when you're listening to a play intently, the language of the play or a movie or TV show, whatever, colonizes the mind entirely, like it is occupied by those words and making sense of those words and attending to the next word, which you don't know what it's going to be. And your own language is a little bit in the back seat, which is how, how it should be when you're watching a play. But children who are nonverbal, you know, I sort of skipped ahead in, in saying this, but it's, it's, it takes us back to a state of childhood where everything depended on observation and trying to make sense of the world visually because you're pre-verbal. You're right. not understanding all that language at all. Right. And that's a much more emotional, directly emotional time. And you're free to be associative with your own language in your head when you're watching it. Your, your own thoughts are kind of strolling through you that mm -hmm. doesn't take away you're not missing any words by doing that nor are you missing anything visual because our visual sense is so dominant I think so it's a it, it's a more in, it's an intimate experience it's very emotional it returns you to the state of childhood observation and it allows you to be kind of associative in your own head in the moment kind of constantly without losing engagement with what's happening I love that, and well, and and also, it's not if if you if you're not an English speaker, it doesn't rely on on understanding the language. My, that's my very favorite thing about it, and I I wish my company was better resourced and staffed, and wasn't just everyone doing ten jobs all the time just to put on a play, right. that we could really be hyper proactive in getting people whose children who themselves or their children may not be fluent in English yet, or maybe ever, do not have access to English and know that they could see this thing, which is kind of sophisticated as a little work of art, I think, in a, in a way, um, and have full access to it in, a, in every way. Hello, folks. This is Mike McShane, and you're listening deeply and completely to the Reduce Shakespeare Company podcast. Yes. Where can you RSC the RSC? You can see Reduced Shakespeare in your own home by owning your very own copy of Pop-Up Shakespeare, written by me and Reed Martin and beautifully illustrated by Jenny Mazels. It's on sale worldwide, and you can find links to both Amazon and independent bookstores in the U.S. and the U.K. on our website. Our fall of 2019 tour of the complete works of William Shakespeare abridged, revised, concludes next week in East Lansing, Michigan, with two performances on November 20th and 21st, and in Branchburg, New Jersey on the 23rd. Then we head to Israel, where we'll perform the international premiere of Hamlet's Big Adventure, a prequel, from November 26th to the 30th as part of the London in Tel Aviv Festival, with performances in Jerusalem, Haifa, and Tel Aviv. And our 2019 dates 
conclude with performances of the ultimate Christmas show abridged in Pontiac, Michigan on December 14th and in Phoenix, Arizona on December 20th and 21st. As always, the very best way to stay up to date about all of our worldwide performance dates is to sign up for the Reduced Reader, our email newsletter. Go to ReducedShakespeare.com and click on the link to subscribe and check out our touring page for specific box office venue and ticket information. Now back to my conversation with director Mary Zimmerman talking about her production of The Steadfast Tin Soldier, which has become an annual holiday favorite at the Looking Glass Theater Company in Chicago. You talked about um, this uh, story being filled with episodes, which seems very much in keeping yes. with your other work that I've seen, um, Metamorphosis, maybe yep. be originally. Um, uh, uh, how do you find the drama or the through line in a, in a, in a story where there is, that is mostly episodic? That is a great question. And I, in my own head, divide the texts I've done into sort of two camps. One is, the, for instance, the Odyssey, which has a, the, one of the most beautiful structures built into it ever and has a through line, a beginning, middle, and end, although it's highly episodic. But it's going somewhere with the same characters from beginning to end. Then um, Journey to the West might also be that. That's a 3,000-page novel with 100 chapters. But nonetheless, it is going somewhere and does conclude and has a proper order. On the other hand, is something like the Book of the Thousand Nights and One Night, or, or the Arabian Nights, or all the myths of Ovid, or yeah. all the Greco-Roman myths. Yeah. And in that case, I have a tougher job of organizing that material into an evening that has a shape mm. that is not a, not a given within that within that text. And you know, I think I do that kind of instinctively. And with, with metamorphoses, honestly, you know, or anything that's more collage or anthology like mm -hmm. that, I, um, I pick stories that the people I've already cast will be good in. And in metamorphoses, I pick stories that would lean to the water because I knew I was doing it in water, where the water would amplify or be beneficial or serve symbolically or be spectacular or whatever. Because as you know, I don't write my scripts until I'm already in rehearsal. Oh, I know. It's, I, and I'm one of these days. One of these <laughs> days, Mary Zerman, I will audition for you and get into one of your projects. Um, but um, um, I, I was going to ask, do you, do, how much do you come in with into rehearsal? You, uh, the, are, uh, are the actors your chess pieces? Uh, do they are they are they your co-authors? That's the wrong word, but do you know what I mean? They they have a this is a, maybe a slightly nefarious sounding thing to say. <laughs> they have enormous influence, but little agency. Uh, I yeah, am yeah. I am writing it, and sure. I'm writing it a day ahead of them, not a day behind them. I think some people think we improvise all day, and then I go home and write down what they. It's the opposite. Right. I'm I'm just like a regular old playwright, except I don't honor myself with that title because I'm an adapter, but a regular old adapter who, but the period that I, during which I'm doing the writing is superimposed upon the period in which we are rehearsing the play rather than in front of it. That's, other than that though, I am the one making the script and in charge of the script, but who is in the show influences everything. If someone's particularly funny at something, I make sure I get that in there. If someone can sing, then there's songs. If no one can sing, there aren't songs. And, you know, these plays go on to, to live sometimes for years and years, and they're t 
tied to it, their original team in that way, in this profound way. So if someone's super tumbly and acrobatic, that, you know, that might get in there. Plus, for instance, in Arabian Nights, uh, two different actors suggested stories to me, which I did end up reading and putting in. Mm. And that, you know, so that's an enormous, enormous influence. But we aren't team deci- deciding. I think it's right. very... The buck always stops. Yeah, yeah, and I'm responsible in all in both yeah. good and bad ways for, <laughs> for that. And I, my own feeling is that is for me anyway, kind of necessary. If you have a particular aim, if you're starting with a blank slate, like what shall we do? I think that kind of devising is a different task than I'm adapting this particular mm. work of of literature or oral oral text because I've been enamored of it since childhood, and I have a certain rust in me as to how I want it to happen. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, and everything that you're saying makes a a ton of sense. And I I love the fact that you are inspired by or influenced by uh, your actors. Uh, Not to blow smoke, I can can imagine um, William Shakespeare giving the exact same answer. Well, not to blow smoke, but a lot of playwrights are writing for very specific actors. Um, Bruce Norris wrote Downstate for K. Todd Freeman. He wrote that part for K. Todd. And and Shakespeare knew his company, and Moliere knew his company, Charlie Chaplin knew his company. A lot of people knew their company because they live in the theater and do work and like their friends and want their friends in the show just as it ever was. So, so, you know, great and puny like myself, you know, we all, we all do, we all do have that. You know, what was so special about Tin Soldier is I did have to conceive a lot in advance because it relies on some very elaborate props and puppets Mm. and settings, so I I had this list of 17 scenes of vignettes. But, I mean, the contribution in that case of the actors um, is is so extensive. Talk to me about Chris Donahue, who is one of the people that you've worked with many, many times. I saw him the first. I'm coming. I'm late to the to Chris Donahue party because yeah. I first saw him in Moby Dick uh-huh. uh, uh, as Captain Ahab. And honestly, I could, I could. He stood downright gazing into the middle distance, yeah. could see, you know, looking for his great white whale. Uh-huh. And I could honestly watch him alone doing that for an hour and a half. He's so compelling. Yeah, Chris and I knew each other at Northwestern. Um, I was a grad graduate student and he was a senior when we first worked together which was in my first version of the odyssey since then we've done 18 separate separate texts together not counting the remounts so for years decades i would call chris my closest artistic collaborator because i just used him all the time he was you know he was in the odyssey when he was 22 years old and then he was in it at oregon shakespeare festival two years ago at the age of 50 and that experience for both of us is so profound. And um, same with, he was in Notebooks of Leonardo da Vinci, he was in Arabian Nights. He's been in Metamorphosis, though he wasn't in the original. He was in Secret in the Wings. He was in Silk. He narrated Silk. I, I just goes on and on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's the bar none best narrator on the planet. He lights on text like a dragonfly and takes off again. He has the most delicate, sensitive touch with narration of anyone in the in the world. And he has a beautiful baritone voice that he doesn't have to push in the slightest. He also, you mentioned looking at him gazing in the middle distance. He looks audience 
members in in the the whites of their eyes. He can come <laughs> backstage and say, "There's a lady in the fourth row, third over." That's he. Whereas a lot of actors willingly blind themselves to the particularities of the actual the actual audience that's actually looking back. It throws them too much. The reality yeah. of them throws them. He is uber present with them, and that's why he's such a good storyteller on stage. And yeah, I mean, Chris has either been in virtually everything I've ever done, or I tried to get him in virtually everything no. I've ever done. He was in an opera I did that had a speaking part. <laughs> I've, I've, I used him in Shakespeare in the Park, just doing three or four lines. Sure. You know, one of the things that I love so much about Steadfast Tin Soldier is the fact I'm I'm a real text guy. I love saying lines, but and you too. Yeah, you, I call yeah. that narrative all the time, usually. Yeah. And yet, and yet, this was so. This spoke to me in so many ways. Maybe it was the musical stuff that I noticed, but there was a lot of there's a lot of physical movement. But it's not dance, but it kind of is. It's not clowning, but it kind of is. Yeah. You know, it's this visual storytelling with fantastic, lovely music. Um, bless you, Kitty. <laughs> Um, that um, that that I thought was just captivating for the from from you know kids to grandparents yeah. that I saw in the audience with me. Yeah. yeah, I mean I'm very very proud of it, and you know it came out of a a year I took off where I didn't do any production. I did a remount of an opera for three weeks in New York. That's the only thing I did, and I have to say I think it kind of paid off. You know what I mean? Like it was the first thing I did after not working, you know, in the theater for a year. Now, of course, I was prepped, I was doing all pre-production sure. for it and all of that, but I think it I think it benefited from that in some way. And also, you're right. Like, I mean, I I've always toggled between storytelling through the language of literature mm -hmm. and the narrative voice. My my shows often have narr narrators, even Odysseus is a narrator or Scheherazade is a narrator mm -hmm. with sub-narrators inside of her. But there's also in every one of my plays a moment where no one's talking and all that's happening is movement and music and storytelling in a different way. And those are often my very favorite moments, the moments I don't tire of, even like an elaborate transition. Like if I'm in the booth and it's late in the run, I'll, be, I'll stay through, you know, this yeah. sort of um, silent part. They're not silent. You know, the way I described Tin Soldier the most is it's like a silent movie. It's mm -hmm. continuously accompanied by mm -hmm. Andre Pluses and Amanda Dennert. It's a co-score. And Amanda was with us more than Dre this, during this remount. And all credit to them. They, in a way, are the text of the show, is that music. Yes, right. Um, so there's constant music, but there's just you know, no speaking. We do slip some written language in there. Those are actually the two, you know, spoken lines or one line of narrative that I loved that I just wanted to get in there. And the other, um, one of the only spoken sentences in the story, you must not want what you cannot have, which yeah. is what the evil goblin says. You said you were drawn to wanting to create, find a text that could lend itself to a holiday story. Would you consider, do you consider yourself sentimental? <laughs> you know, I think I am. I, I think I am, or, or romantic, maybe. But, uh, that's a better way to say you it. You know, yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think you can both be sentimental and a giant cynic about other things yeah. and a realist about lots of things. Yeah. But, but, you know, if we don't have sentiment in the theater, I'm not sure why we're there. You know, it's not all logos and reason. We're responding uh, emotionally. And I also think there's a spiritual aspect to coming together and meditatively in the dark 
training our attention on one thing, which is an increasingly rare and rare experience, unmediated by the electronic screen or device. It's a rare experience of presence, you know? And I'm sentimental about that, that's for sure. That's it for this week's Reduced Shakespeare Company podcast. We did not even talk about the fabulous puppets that let Mary and her cast play with scale or the fact that the steadfast tin soldier is only an hour long, which means you can see the show and still have the rest of the evening for dinner and holiday cocktails. If you can make it to Chicago this holiday season, go to lookingglasstheater.org for more information about the steadfast tin soldier. It runs until January 26, 2020. Then send us your holiday gifts via email to feedback at ReducedShakespeare.com. You can find us and interact with other fans on our dedicated podcast page on Facebook at RSE Podcast, on Instagram at Reduced Shakespeare Company, or on my preferred platform on Twitter at Reduced. You can also follow me on Twitter at Austin Titchener. Thanks as always to Lump of Coal, Matthew Croak, Web Services by Ginger Power Limited, Music by John Weber and Garage Band. Our random fan shout-out this week goes to Pat Hoppy. No reason, it's just random. On this Veterans Day, special thanks to military and acting veteran Mike McShane, who's been making the world safe for democracy and comedy for decades. And finally, thanks very much to you for listening. I'm Austin Titchener, 674 seconds of the Reduced Shakespeare Company. I think we can end it there, Mary, because you ended on a pun. Presents <laughs> for the holidays. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you very, very much. This podcast is a production of the Reduce Shakespeare Company. Reducing expectations since 1981. Go to ReduceShakespeare.com for performance dates, actor bios, email newsletters, and so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less. And so much less.